Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, no, without water, no ice, outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus, one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, how humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs away. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the sixth day of our summer seven-day session. Uh, it's 13th of January, 2022. And this morning we're going to take up a koan. This is number 23 in the Mumon Khan, Think Neither Good Nor Evil. And we'll start off with just um, reading the case. The sixth patriarch was pursued by monk Myo up to Dayure. The patriarch, seeing Myo coming, laid the robe and the bowl on a rock and said, this robe symbolizes the faith. Is it to be fought for? You may take it away. Myo tried to lift it, but it was immovable as a mountain. Faltering and trembling, Myo said, I have come for the Dharma, not for the robe. I beg you, lay brother, to open the way for me. The sixth patriarch said, thinking neither good nor evil, 
At this very moment, what is the original face of monk Myo? At this, Myo was all at once enlightened. His whole body was dripping with sweat. With tears flowing, he bowed down and asks, asked, besides these secret words and meanings, is there anything else deeper still? The patriarch said, what has been revealed to you is not secret. If you look into your own true self, what secret is right there? Myo said, though I trained under Obai and the other monks, I could not awaken to my true self. Now, thanks to your instruction, I am like one who has drunk water and actually knows for himself whether it is cold or warm. Lay brother, you are my teacher. The patriarch said, we both have Obai for our teacher. Live up to your attainment with care. So um, just this, we need a fair bit of background on this one to, for it to make sense. Um, first of all, just to introduce the, the pr protagonists. Um, the first, the sixth patriarch, Hui Neng. Uh, we always use his his um, Chinese. The Chinese form is his name. Of his name, Eno is the what's used in Japanese. Um, his dates are 638 to 713, so very early Tang Dynasty. Um, he's one of the greatest masters and um, most important in our school, Chan school, Zen school, after Buddha, the Buddha himself and Bodhidharma. All of the five traditional schools of Chinese Chan trace their origin back to Hui Nung. Just a little bit of a little bit of, um, of background material. So his full Chinese name is Da Jin Hui Nung, or it's also known as Cao uh, Si. And I'm reading for, from um, Andy Ferguson's book, Zen's Chinese Heritage. The main source of um, information about um, Hui Neng's life is, uh, comes from uh, his Platform Sutra. And Ferguson says, this work is traditionally regarded as a lecture by Hui Neng recorded by his disciple, Fa Hai. The earliest extant copy of the work found among papers taken from the Dunhuang Caves dates to about a century after Hui Neng lived. The events of Hui Neng's life were central to political intrigues and factional religious struggles that occurred between the northern and southern schools of Zen during the 8th century. These facts, plus the dating of the Dunhuang manuscript, have cast serious doubt on the veracity of the main traditional stories about Hui Neng. The evidence has led many modern scholars, led by the eminent Dr. Hu Shi, to regard the Platform Sutra as a fabricated document created by Hui Neng's spiritual descendant, Shen Hui, 
to provide spiritual legitimacy for his own faction during the turbulent 8th century. Um, this may be the case, uh, but these stories and our, our um, koan comes from, from this biography are still important legends or myths within our tradition, um, showing up different teaching points through the, through the stories. Despite the arguments surrounding the Platform Sutra, this text of Huaynung's teachings contains important and insightful material. From a religious standpoint, the text expounds and supports the sudden nature of Zen enlightenment. Strictly speaking, this view does not recognize expedience, such as chanting the Buddha's name, reading sutras, etc., as being necessary or even useful in realizing enlightenment. In contrast to this view, the Northern School, led by Yu Chuan Shen Xiu, variously emphasize these religious practices as being required to maintain the original pure mind that is realized in and not separate from awakening. These contrasting views, in one form or another, have given rise to debates between different Zen schools since at least the time of Huaynung. There is scant solid evidence to support the traditional story of Huaynung's life, but his legend remains a cornerstone of Chinese religious culture. When there are these debates, these long-standing debates, um, it's, it's, it's um, often because you can't clearly cut a line down and say this is right and this is wrong. The, de the debate is there because it's, it's an area of contention or uncertainty. But for, for now we're interested in the, in, the, in the biographical material that's found in this, in this um, platform sutra. And, and um, especially the part of the legend that, that um, is in our koan. But in terms of how we got to that point, um, Huaynung lost his father, who was an official of some kind, at the age of three. And he was forced as a youngster to support his widowed mother by selling wood in ancient Guangzhou city and um, said to have, have come to awakening instantly as he heard someone reciting the Diamond Sutra. And we'll turn to um, another text now for, to get more of the, the, the details on this. It's told many, the story is told many times in different sources. This one is a relatively new, um, collection of the Mumonkan um, with commentaries. It's um, called Passing Through the Gateless Barrier and it's um, with a subtitle Koan Practice for Real Life and it's by Guo Gu, the, the Dharma heir of Master Xing Yin.
So not only did his um, father die when when Huelang was three, but apparently previously he had been been um, he had been an official who was uh, stripped of his official status. So a tra traumatic uh, experience for the family, and. Um, he, he had been in northern China, but was banished to the south, which was the, the sort of the, the, the wilderness, you could say. Um, and then shortly after that, he died. So they, he and Huynung um, and his mother were in um, abject poverty. Guagu relates, Huynung, a very filial son, chopped and sold wood to support his mother. One day, at age 28, as he was passing by a certain street on his way home from the market where he had sold his firewood, Huaynang heard someone, perhaps a monk, chanting the Diamond Sutra, the quintessential scripture on the wisdom teaching of emptiness. As he was illiterate, he had never come across the scripture. He listened intently and had a deep insight when he heard the words, non-abiding mind arising. Or another translation for this is um, um, a, uh, oh. we'll stick with this one I'm just not recalling the other one right now non-abiding mind arising something like arouse the mind that abides nowhere it's another way there are, there are many different translations Non-abiding is the nature of mind. It is our inherent wisdom and ability to be awake. Non-abiding, flowing. Not getting stuck anywhere. He says, like the inherent openness of a room, unobstructed by the furniture in it. Mind here refers to bodhi mind or bodhicitta, the altruistic mind of compassion to save all sentient beings. So essentially this line expresses the inseparable union of wisdom and compassion. A mind not caught up with anything is free and because of this freedom it is able to give rise to genuine selfless compassion for all. Huaynung asks the person who, who was chanting about what it was, and the, the man answered, it is the Diamond Sutra. And Huaynung wanted to know where he could find out more about this text. And in this way, he learned about the great master Hong Ren. Um, the, the chanter related that he had, had received his his um, copy of the, of the Diamond Sutra from Hong Ren, who lived in the far north at Mount Huang Mei, Mount Yellow Plum. Goes on to say, Hui Nung was troubled, as he very much wanted to study with his teacher Hong Ren, but being filial, he had to find a way to take care of his mother. And in this, in this uh, situation, a donor emerged. We don't know how it happened, but a patron um, 
gave him the, ne the money he needed to um, look after his mother while he was away and uh, supported him in his desire to, to um, study with um, Hong Ren. It took him a whole month going by foot to reach Hong Ren on uh, Mount Huang Mei. Hong Ren was a part of this new upcoming movement within Buddhism, Chan tradition, which arose as a, as a reaction to the, the scholasticism and intellectualization of Buddhism that was rife in, in, in uh, China at that time. When Hong Ren met Hui Nung, he asked him, where are you from? And we know from um, earlier in Sishin, this, this is a loaded question. Hui Nung said, I'm from Lingnan in the south. And, and at this time, the south was considered to be uh, uncivilized, all the great cities in China were in the north. And so the, the fifth patriarch responded, Lingnan, in the south there are only uncivilized people. What makes you think you can study Buddhism? Um, here it makes it sound quite, quite polite, but in fact um, he basically used, used some dis, um, slightly disparaging world, word that meant something like um, uh, barbarians. You're all barbarians down there, aren't you? Hoons. Ignorant people. Huenang immediately retorted, in terms of Buddha nature, there is no north or south. Even though I am illiterate, I'm the same as you. <coughs> so um, he rose to the the test of the the, uh, the fifth ancestor's challenge. And this is this is this is an important part of the story, Huaynung's lowly position and the fact that he was um, illiterate and um, poor and he was able to um, uh, become this the sixth ancestor. Of course, Hong Ren was, was delighted by Wei Nung's words and uh, could see his, his um, deep potential. Wei Nung continued, My mind keeps producing wisdom. I believe that not being alienated from my own nature is important. This nature itself seems to be a field of blessings. Hong Ren, feeling perhaps that Hui Nung would be harmed by jealous monks, said, stop, say no more, go to the mill and pound the rice. That will be your job there. So or even though he sees Hui Nung's um, uh, understanding, 
he he sends him to the to the the, the rice pounding mill. Um, hard hard labour there. This um, massive um, mortar and pestles. I don't know if you you still can, but um, you certainly used to be able to go and see um, where Wei Nung laboured in um, in uh, Hung Ren's temple, which is still still standing. This uh, big counterweight to pull down the, the, the pestle onto the, um, the rice that was being husked to be, in order to be eaten. In order to protect him, Hong Ren sent him to do the work in the granary. Later on, after some months, um, Hong Ren went to see Hui Nang and said, do you understand why I sent you here? And uh, Hui Nang replied, yes, I do. Your task is to pound the rice, do it single-mindedly. I will, said Hui Nang. He, he, so he continued with his work there. This, um, this work of um, preparing the rice to be eaten by the monks was um, seen as uh, very precious. Manual labor in general has been, has been always highly respected in Chan and Zen. Guoguo says, many seasoned practitioners voluntarily choose to work in these places because they are places where, where one gives service. And so it's, it's seen as a, a form of, of, of uh, one's bodhisattva vows. Hong Ren was to visit Huaynang again, and he asked him, is the rice ready? And again, the question is more than just talking about the rice that's being pounded. Huaynang says, it's been ready for a long time. Hong Ren at that time was already an old man. He struck the floor three times with his staff. Huaynang took this to mean the third watch of the night, and so that night Huaynang went to Hung Ren's quarters, and Hung Ren expounded the Diamond Sutra to him. Huaynang's mind was completely illuminated. Hung Ren then transmitted to him his own monk's robe and begging bowl as a symbol of entrustment of the responsibility to continue the Chan lineage, the responsibility for... Um, the life of, of Chan, it's, it's correct passing down to the next generation. But of course this was a highly um, 
sort of transgressive act in the sense that here was this guy from the south who wasn't even a monk, uh, illiterate, working in the granary, and um, he didn't announce this to the uh, assembly, but instead um, he had instituted a kind of competition where he said, um, yeah, I've got to f find a successor, and so um, please everyone come up with a verse to demonstrate your realization. So he set up this little um, drama to happen. The head monk, who was called Shen Xu, um, wrote a poem, and everybody was admiring it and reciting it in the monastery. And um, Hong Ren had, had seemed to have given his approval to it. And of course, people bowed to uh, uh, his status and thought since he was head the monk, head, the head monk, he must therefore uh, be the one who would take over the monastery from Hong Ren. And Shen Yu's verse was as follows. The body is a tree of Bodhi. The mind is like a clear mirror stand. Polish it diligently time and again, not letting any dust gather. And while Hong Ren was praised it, he knew that Shen Xu was not yet awakened based on this verse. It's sort of um, on the level of um, of ethics, polishing our mirrors so that it's, um, we don't let any dust gather, we don't let any defilements gather on our, the mirror of our mind, uh, but it doesn't go very far. Now, Hui Nung heard the verse being recited by somebody around the granary, so he asked who'd written it, and um, everybody was credulous that he didn't know about even know about the competition, he had his head down doing his work. And so um, he asked if anyone could write a verse and he was told he could. And so he um, had to get somebody else to write his own verse next to Shen Xu's. And his verse was, went like this. Bodhi, Bodhi originally is not a tree. A clear mirror has no stand. Originally, there is not a single thing. Where can dust collect? Originally, there is not a single thing. This became a, um, a famous phrase in Zen. So quite another uh, perspective that he's bringing in here. Where can the dust collect if there's... Nothing is solid, nothing is, is um, lasting. Everyone was astonished and when the news um, reached Hongren, he came and saw the lines and um, asked, of course, who wrote that, knowing perfectly well who it was. And then um, Hongren said, just have somebody scratch it off, get, erase it, get rid of it. So then Hong Ren went to the granary again, and um, this was when he 
he, he passed on the robe, robe and the bowl to, bowl to him. But he realized that this was not going to go down well in the monastery. And so he advised Hui Nung to leave in the night to take the robe and the bowl and um, uh, leave the temple. But because he was not from the local area, he didn't know how to go. And so Hung Rin said that he would show him the way to go and uh, took, him, took him to the docks. And um, in some versions of the story, rowed him across the river to the, the road that he was to take into the mountains. A very, very um, moving part of the story. This old man, the the, the abbot Hong Ren, ferrying his young successor, Wei Nung, across the waters. Literally uh, carrying him across to the other shore. So after this, apparently Hongren didn't give any teachings for three days, and somebody thought some people thought maybe there was something wrong that he was falling ill, and the head monk came to inquire, and um, finally Hongren addressed, addressed the assembly and said, "I am old. The teaching has already been passed down," and so everybody was wondering who it had been passed to. Um, and he said, to the one who is capable, which was a, uh, uh, the form of his name, Quailung's name, and capable of wisdom. So he was, he was um, referring to Huainung. And this is where the, the story in our, our koan starts. Um, because we have... Um, the monks hearing that the robe and the bowl have been passed to this um, southerner and layman, and they're furious. Um, in some versions of the story, um, 200 monks uh, chase after Hui Nung. Um, And they, they, um, they go for two months through the mountains, uh, but only the monk in our story, Myo, has the stamina to actually uh, catch up with um, Wei Nung. And um, they come up to this, um, this mountain pass, Dayure, or Dayu in, in Chinese, and it crosses here with another um, important legend that um, apparently you can still go and see where Wei Nung hid in the rock um, when he took sh shelter from a fire that was lit by the angry monks who were trying to catch him and, 
and um, wrest the robe and the bowl from him. Now, people hearing this may think, angry monks who wanted to kill Wainung? What's, what's all that about? It's, it's important to understand that um, in any big group, and there was said to be around a thousand monks at, at uh, this temple, Hongren's temple, there'll be all kind, different kinds of human beings there for all kinds of different reasons. And it's, it's idealistic to imagine that they were all bodhisattvas or paragons of virtue. And this, goes, this really goes for any group. So um, just a little bit about, about Monk Myo, the other protagonist in the story um, that we're going to meet here now. Um, Hui Meng is, Ming is his name in Chinese. And um, he, was, he was practicing at Hongren's monastery. Um, sometimes he's referred to as a head monk or you know, somebody in a position of responsibility. And he's uh, said to have been very physically strong, straightforward, a, a, a guileless kind of person, but with a quick temple, temper. And he was, had been a, a general in, before becoming a monk and didn't become a monk until his middle age. And, and this background was perhaps what gave him the stamina to keep, keep um, on chasing after Huaynang. So he catches up, and this is where our koan starts. Um, he, he catches up with, with Nyo at this mountain pass, Dayure. The sixth patriarch was pursued by monk Nyo up to Dayure. The pa patriarch, seeing Nyo coming, laid the robe and the bowl on the rock and said, this robe symbolizes the faith is it to be fought for? You may take it away. So he's, he's Mio's coming for him, determined to set things right and to get that robe and bowl from this, this upstart. But um, he lays them down. He's not going to, f to fight over them. This... This robe symbolizes the faith, the Dharma. Are we, going to, are we really going to fight for the Dharma? Think of um, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who um, would, um, would not use violence against either side in Vietnam and, and was attacked by both sides he said that he would, um, he would rather see the Dharma destroyed than to fight for it. 
because of course to use force would be to destroy or, or attack the very the very basis of the Dharma, non-harming. In in one translation, it's it uh, has this this robe symbolizes the entrustment. In other words, the the passing down of the Dharma, the 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 um, uh, transmission from generation to generation of the, the truths of the Dharma. So Myo, Myo comes forward as the bowl and the robe sit there on, um, on the rock and he goes to, to pick them up. But we're told it was as immovable as a mountain. He can't move them. What might be going on here? Is it some kind of um, supernatural thing? I think it's much more likely that um, he can't bring himself to pick them up. He suddenly, he suddenly is questioning his own um, attitude towards Huaynung. And it was for this reason that he, he was unable to, to, to move them. Kind of psychological par paralysis. We can read this symbolically too. Uh, the Dharma can't be grasped. It can't be owned. And it's, it's, it's a weighty matter. So he's, he's there faltering and trembling, it says. And suddenly he has this, this um, deep shift in his attitude and is suddenly in a very, a very uncomfortable place, a place of, of really where his, his uh, certainties have fallen away. Um, and in a way this... this um, this koan um, illustrates the process of working on koans. That, that in doing so, we, we have to go through a, a place of not knowing and a, and a place of, of an uncomfortable place of uh, vulnerability it's, it's an absolutely essential part of the process of, of working on any koan. To allow ourselves to get shaken up into that uncomfortable place of not knowing. It's not for anything, uh, nothing that Hakuin called the koans vile. Those vile koans. came across a passage which, which captures this process. It's, um, the writer is Greg Lavoy, and he says, it is precisely the quality of fragility, the capacity for being shaken up, that is paradoxically the key to growth. Any structure, whether at the molecular, chemical, 
physical, social or psychological level that is insulated from disturbance is also protected from change. We must therefore be willing to get shaken up, to submit ourselves to the dark blossomings of chaos in order to reap the blessings of growth. Much of this is axiomatic. Stress often prompts breakthroughs. Crises point towards opportunities. Chaos is an integral part of the creative process. And protest abets the cause of democracy. The whole science of immunization is based on this wisdom. We introduce a bit of chaos in order to prevent a lot of chaos. Just enough, but not too much. We shake up the system for the sake of helping it evolve and become stronger. So this is a, an, an analogy for our times. Who knew that, that koans were like a vaccine? <laughs> so Monk Myo is, is plunged into this, this state of um, not knowing and uncertainty, faltering and trembling. And then out of him comes this question, I have come for the Dharma, not for the robe. I beg you, lay brother, to open the way for me. So not only does he, he allow himself to, to um, uh, feel this, this uncertainty, this kind of mixing up of his, his um, sense of what's right and wrong, but he's sincere enough and, uh, and uh, humble enough to then ask for the teaching. In it, he's really acknowledging uh, uh, Hong Ren's uh, right in, in trusting the Dharma to Huai Nang. Lay brother, open the way for me. And then that Huai Nang says, thinking neither good nor evil, at this very moment, what is the original face of Monk Myo? Thinking neither good nor evil, at this very moment, what is the original face of Monk Myo? Again, he were given, given here very um, uh, concentrated piece of, of meditation instruction, thinking neither good nor evil. That's, that's really what we're called on to do, is to drop all our thoughts of good and evil, all our opinions, all our preferences, we, we remind ourselves this whenever we chant affirming faith in mind. The great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. When preferences are cast aside, the way stands clear and undisguised. It's also mentioned at the end of the Metta Sutta, when we, when we chant the Metta Sutta, about um, letting go of false views. This letting go of false views allows metta to flow. Um, it's, it's a testament to Myo's state of mind that uh, he can actually 
in this moment, in this, this very moment when he's asked it about what his original face is, uh, that he can actually follow these instructions of, of dropping right and wrong. And this is one of the points of the koan, to, to demonstrate Monk Myo's um, mind state here. How, how, how is it that he comes to be able to do this in this moment of, of challenge? Um, the great uh, 20th century Chinese master, Xu Yun, who uh, lived to be 120, died in the, I think in the 1960s, um, he talks about um, the development of the koans for use as teaching tools. And he says that up to the tongue, that's the end of the tongue, 935, um, And song, which is ends 1278, up to the time of these two dynasties, he says, most adherents of the Chan sect became enlightened after hearing a word or sentence. The transmission from master to disciple did not exceed the sealing of mind, mind by mind, and there was no fixed dharma taught. In their questions and answers, the role played by a master was not only to untie the bonds fettering his disciple, according to available circumstances, just like giving of an appropriate medicine for each particular ailment. In and after the Song Dynasty, human potentialities became duller, and the instructions given by the masters were not carried out by their disciples. For instance, when they were taught to lay down everything, or to not think of either good or evil, practices could not lay down everything and could not stop thinking of either good or evil. Under these circumstances, the ancestors and masters were compelled to devise a poison against poison method by teaching their followers to inquire into a koan or to look into a huado, it's the nub of the koan. Their, their, their disciples were even taught to hold a meaningless huado as firmly as possible in their minds without loosening their grip even as short as moment in the same way as a rat will stubbornly bite the board of a coffin at a fixed spot until it has made a hole. It's a memorable image. The aim of this method was to use a single thought to oppose and arrest myriad thoughts because the masters had no alternative. It was like an operation which became imperative when poison had been introduced into the body. So um, this was we could say that the koan system arose out of uh, necessity to, um, to meet the needs of uh, students who could no longer just hear instruction, like stop thinking of good and evil, like Mang Myo, and actually stop. This um, stop thinking of good and evil koan is the case behind the, the primary koan that has come down to us in, as um, what is your original face before your parents gave birth to you. So that's like the, the, the um, 
been used um, as, a, as a primary koan. At this, Mio was all at once enlightened. Just on hearing this question, and following the instructions of Huenang, his whole body was dripping with sweat. With tears flowing, he bowed down and asked, besides these secret words and meanings, is there anything else deeper still? The patriarch said, what has been revealed to you is not secret. If you look into your own true self, what is secret is right there. So um, we can we can see in this in this um, moment of enlightenment that um, it's a transformation taking place in the in the body. Not just in the in the mind, joy, release, emotional charge. That he asks, is there anything more? This is this is another point of the koan. What what prompts him to ask this? And the, the, the ancestor says, no, it's not a secret. The secret is right here. We could understand that it's quite because of this fact that, that he asks us there more. It's what he saw. Uh, was so obvious and so simple. It's not something esoteric. Mio says, though I trained under Obai with the other monks, I could not awaken to my true self. Now, thanks to your instruction, I am like one who has drunk water and actually knows for himself whether it is cold or warm. Lay brother, brother, you are my teacher. Um, in one translation of this, um, which really cap captures the experience more, more vividly, um, it says, Thanks to your lucid instruction, I've taken a drink, and it's like the water itself knows how warm or cold the drink is. The water itself knows how warm or cold the drink is. There's no separation anymore between the drinker and the, and the, the, the drink. But um, although Mio um, makes this avowal of being the student of Hui Nung, Hui Nung comes back in very down-to-earth fashion and says, 
We both have Obai for our teacher. Live up to your attainment with care. Live up to your attainment with care. Or other, other translations emphasize the entrustment of here, the, the, the sense of, tr of transfer of, of uh, the teaching. But it's also pointing to the fact that to um, see one's original face, as Miao did, isn't the end of the story. It's something we then have to have to uh, live up to. We 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 must engage in this practice after Kensho to purify ourselves. We we don't get wiped clean. The slate doesn't get wiped clean at Kensho. There are still all kinds of habit patterns that formed out of our old delusive ways of thinking and seeing. And so we live up to our insight by then working to purify ourselves of those habit patterns which now are starkly seen. And um, in this case, that after this encounter, Huaynang himself um, stays in obscurity for around about 15 years uh, before he starts teaching, uh, living with hunters in hiding. And Mio himself lives alone um, in the mountains for some time as well. There's, there's periods of, of, of maturation and ripening, <coughs> very, very important. We've nearly run out of time, so I'll just have to abbreviate uh, comments on the verse and the, and the commentary. Here's the commentary. It's quite short. It must be said that in an emergency, the sixth patriarch did not did something. Sorry, the sixth patriarch did something extraordinary. He is like a kindly grandmother who peels a fresh lychee, removes the seed, and puts it into your mouth so that you you need only swallow it. Um, Mumon, in his comments, he's often playing with us, and uh, we've just heard about this this. Um, uh, awakening of, of Mio, us seeing and recognizing his original face. But as readers, we may not think it's quite so obvious what happened, and yet Mumono is saying it's like you've just been fed a, 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 a peeled and a lychee, seedless lychee, put into your mouth by Wei Nung. I think it, it's this commentary um, functions to urge us to resolve this, to understand what's going on here, to realize it for ourselves. What is my original face before my parents gave birth to me? What is my true self? And finally, the verse. It's one of the strongest verses in the whole of the Mumonkan. You cannot describe it. You cannot picture it. You can never praise it fully. Stop all your groping and maneuvering. There is nowhere to hide your true self. 
When the world is annihilated, it remains indestructible. You cannot describe it, you cannot picture it. You can never praise it fully. Stop all your groping and maneuvering. Stop grasping at things. One master asks the question, where is your mind focused? And got the response, where there is no design. We, we, we need to have a kind of a guileless attitude. As Monk Mio seemed to, had this, this, this sincerity, this, this single-mindedness that served him well, even though he was, he was rough in his manner, there was this, this unity and, and uh, openness to him at the same time. There is nowhere to hide your true self when the world is annihilated, it remains indestructible. There's another, another koan in the, in the Hikigan Roku um, called Dai's Ways. It goes along with everything else. And in this koan, a monk asks uh, Dai's Way, when the conflagration at the end of the Kalpa sweeps through and the great cosmos is destroyed, I wonder, is this one destroyed or not? Daiswe said, it will be destroyed. The monk said, will it be gone along with everything else? And Daiswe says, it will be gone along with everything else. So which one is it? Does it remain indestructible or is it gone along with everything else? We so much want there to be um, black and white answers. That the truth is is something something else here. In what sense is uh, does it not get destroyed at the end of of the world? In what sense does it get dis- it get destroyed? Our true nature. Nothing, uh, no, no theoretical answer to this question is, will satisfy us. We have to find out for ourselves. As Monk Mio did. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number I vow to liberate 
Endless blind passions I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain